there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. I spoke this morning about the gifts of my life, a few of those gifts. And some of you may be thinking, well, the title of the conference is A Woman's Offering. What are we supposed to give? And I'm still not going to get around to that till the third talk. But all of this is a build-up toward that. And I would entitle this second talk, What We Receive. Because... When you stop and think about it, we have nothing to give except what we have received. There's an old blessing before food, grace before food, that's been used for centuries in the church. It says, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. I can remember as a very small child being given a nickel or a dime by one of my parents, which enabled me to go and buy them a present. I remember how proud I was one time when I bought a box of chocolates for my mother for 10 cents. Can you imagine, you younger people, that there was ever such a thing as a box of chocolates for 10 cents? But I had nothing to give until I had received. And that's the position that we're in with God, isn't it? We have absolutely nothing except what we have received. And we need to remember that when we're tempted to feel proud of something that we've done or some gift that God has given us. We forget it's a gift. We almost take credit for it, don't we? If people come up and compliment me on my books or my talks, I have to remember that I have no reason for pride whatsoever because it is a gift from God. And as I said earlier this morning, everything is a gift. And I want to repeat that. I may repeat it three or four more times before we're finished because I think it's so hard for people to believe that, that the circumstances of their lives, as terrible as some of them may be, are in a very special sense a gift from God. And I don't mean that God causes these things any more than God inspired the men to pound the nails through the hands of his son. But we live in a broken world where man's free will is exercised to do evil. I'd like you to think about your own heritage, your own home life. And as bad as it was in the case of some of you, maybe you can think of some good things about it. Maybe you were very poor and maybe very deprived of a good many things that other people had, and yet perhaps you had more love in that home than some here who may have grown up with lots of money. So none of our lives are of unredeemed ugliness, are they? There are always those touches of grace, and we have 
many things for which to thank God. When I get up in the morning, I try to remember to thank God just for the, the privilege of being able to get up. Think of all the people that can't. And then I thank the Lord for work to do. Sometimes we take a very non-Christian attitude toward our work and we groan and we moan and you know, here it is Monday morning, I gotta go back to work. And, well, thank God that you can work. Can you imagine what Johnny Erickson would give to be able to do a day's work like you do? And everything is a gift. My health, my body, my heritage, my home. And I can remember being very thankful for a house that had no walls and no floors and no furniture. I lived in such a house for a year during my missionary experience, it was six poles with a thatched roof on the top. When it rained, the rain came through the house and horizontally. We had a mud floor and the mud floor turned into muddier mud. We cooked on the floor. When I say we, I had a three-year-old daughter who lived in the same house. She slept on a slab of bamboo and I slept in a hammock. But apart from those two things, we didn't have any furniture. And if you groan and moan because you have to scrub a kitchen floor or vacuum a carpet, why well, just think about the fact that there are an awful lot of people who don't have a kitchen floor to scrub and a lot of people who don't have carpets, so I'm very grateful for all of those things. And I'm also very aware of the fact that the only reason that I have them is because they're a gift from God and He could take them away just like that. But what about opportunities? And maybe you were thinking, when I speak of women's gifts, of talents. And you look at somebody else and you think, oh, well, it's just disgusting that so-and-so has six talents and I don't have any. I was behind the door when they gave out the talents. <laughs> and I don't have any gifts and poor little me. Now, if I could sing like these three sisters up here, or if I could lead the singing like Gyneth, or if I could play the piano like, what's her name? Patty, Penny, if I could play the piano like Penny, then I could serve the Lord. What are you saying? Are you saying that God has cheated you of something that you really needed to have in order to serve him? Scripture says that God has given gifts, not just a gift, but gifts to everybody. You have gifts. I was invited one time to speak for a certain women's organization, and I accepted. And then I got a letter from the lady who had invited me, and she was very embarrassed to have to write this letter, but she had learned that her particular organization required that no speaker would be allowed on the platform unless she possessed a certain spiritual gift. So she wrote to ask if I possessed that gift. And I wrote back and said no. So she said, well, I'm terribly sorry, but I have to withdraw the invitation. And I, I just wondered if that person would, would actually believe that God would withhold a gift which is really needed for a particular job. Obviously, they had some reason for thinking that I could do the job they were asking me to do or they wouldn't have asked me. But I take it for granted that God gives to us the gifts which are appropriate to the job that he wants us to do.
When I sit down to write a book, I think, wouldn't it be wonderful to have the brains of C.S. Lewis or Shakespeare? And sometimes I feel like saying to the Lord, why didn't you give me the brains of C.S. Lewis? But I know what his answer would be before I ask him. It would be because I didn't want you to write the books of C.S. Lewis. I gave you this set of brains with this set of limitations and this set of privileges that goes along with this set of brains. And I want you to do what I intended you to do with that set of gifts. And the same goes for every one of you. How often I see a wistful look in the eyes of women when they come up to ask me, how did you ever get into writing? I would love to write a book. A young girl came bounding up to me after a missionary conference at which I'd spoken, and she said, Mrs. Elliot, I believe that the Lord has called me to do exactly what you do. <laughs> and I said, and what's that? Oh, she said, you write books and you travel around and you speak. I think it must be so exciting. Well, of course, if that was, even if that were all I did, which it isn't, I do housework and I bake bread and I iron my husband's shirts and I write letters and I clean and, you know, scrub the toilet. Um, <laughs> Even if all I did was romantic, glamorous things like writing books and traveling around speaking, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that God has called her to do exactly the same thing because she might have to go through exactly the same course of preparation. And when somebody comes up and says, how did you get into writing? Of course, I have to tell them that I probably would never have written a book if it hadn't been that my husband was killed because that was what precipitated me into the field of writing. But everything is a gift. Everything that God gives you has something to do with the working out of that perfect pattern, which is his will. And his will is always love. It starts with love, it operates by love, and it ends with love. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. So let me go back to that fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians again and read you the 15th verse one more time. Indeed, it is for your sake that all things are ordered, so that as the abounding grace of God is shared by more and more, the greater may be the chorus of thanksgiving that ascends to the glory of God. Now, all the things that are ordered in Joe McCarthy's life are totally different from the things which are ordered in Elizabeth Elliot's life or in Gyneth Luganville's life, life or in your life. God knew exactly what was necessary to bring Gyneth or Joe or Elizabeth into conformity to the image of Christ. And if I knew their stories, which I don't, I don't know much at all about either one of them, but if I knew their stories, I'm sure there would be things about which I would say, I don't think I could take that. I don't think I could have survived that. Well, you know, I sit at my desk and I look out over the Atlantic Ocean, and if there's a huge dramatic winter storm, the waves are crashing and the wind is blowing and whistling, and I look out there and there are seagulls sitting on that angry sea, just as calm as a baby in a cradle, 
going up and down over those waves. They, the waves crash. It looks to me as though the seagull is going to get ground underneath. And I think I wouldn't want to be out there. I couldn't do what that seagull does, but of course I was not designed to do what the seagull does, and God never intended for me to be out there riding those waves in the middle of winter. Same thing goes for your experience and mine. If you look at me and say, oh, I've never been through anything like that before, and I don't think I could have lived in a house with no walls, no floors, no furniture, well, of course you weren't called to do that. So we belong, all of us, to a chorus which is meant to redound to the praise of God. Paul calls it a chorus of thanksgiving. And because there are so many differences in our experience and so many differences in our individuality and our personality and our color and our size and our weight and our age and all the other things that make such a variety in this room this afternoon, because of that glorious inequality and distinction, there is a glorious harmony that God has in mind. The orchestra is not all oboes or bassoons or piccolos. There are a lot of violins and a very few piccolos. There's only one triangle and one man with the cymbals. But when the, or when the conductor gets up there, he knows how to bring all of those diverse instruments into a perfect harmony. And so does my Heavenly Father. The scripture says that there are diversities of gifts, but the same Lord. It's the one who made the sun who also made the moon. And we wouldn't want to do without either one, would we? The sun certainly far outshines the moon. The moon is nothing but a reflection. The stars differ from one another in glory, the scripture says. We would all like to be the bright, shining star, but some of us are meant to be just those tiny pinpoints that make up the Milky Way. Some of us are not supposed to be stars at all. There are sopranos and altos and basses and tenors. And when my husband Lars Gren, whom some of you have met today, was getting around toward what I could predict fairly accurately was going to be a proposal, I was praying very hard about what in the world I was going to say. I really didn't have any inclination to even consider a third marriage. It seemed to me beyond any possibility that God could want to give this particular woman a third husband. I thought it was a miracle he gave me the first one. When he died, I just figured, well, that's, that does it for marriage. That's the end of that. There won't be any more of that because, first place, I couldn't imagine ever falling in love with anybody as I had been in love with Jim. And in the second place, because I thought it was a miracle the first time, I thought there wasn't a chance in the world that any man would come along who would want me. And it was 13 years before anybody did. And then when he died, a little over three years later, I figured that's it definitely this time. I was a one-man woman when I was in love with Jim, and I was sure I would never be anything but. But this man, Lars Gren, came along, and I could see that he was moving in the direction of a proposal, so I began to pray about it. And you know what verse the Lord gave me? I began to think about the differences between Jim and Ad and Lars, 
And the verse the Lord gave me was from 1 Corinthians 12. It says, men have different gifts, but it is the same Lord who accomplishes his purposes through them all. And I can look at those three men and I recognize that they had certain things in common. They had at least one thing in common, which was that they liked me. <laughs> but there were many very great differences. There are diversities of gifts, but it is the same Lord who accomplishes his purposes through them all. And it was as if God was saying to me, I am waiting to give you a gift which you're not prepared to take. And I had to think about that for days and weeks. I've forgotten the exact chronology, but finally that proposal came and I still did not have an answer. I told Lars he was just going to have to wait for a while till I did some more thinking and praying. But over the next couple of weeks, it was very plain to me that God was offering me the gift of this man as a husband. And I think that's the way it is very often with God's gifts. He can't get our attention. We're trying to think about our agenda over here, and that has nothing to do with the will of God. He is offering us a gift over here, which is going to bring us happiness and joy and fulfillment that we haven't even dreamt about. But we are rejecting even the proposal, even the possibility, because we've got this agenda. I have a friend who is a single woman. She's in her 40s. She's never been married. She's one of the most bright-eyed, smiling people I've ever seen in my life. And I happen to have just finished writing a book called Loneliness, which will be published next September, I think. And I, while I was writing that book, my friend Linda came for lunch one day. And so I told her what I was working on. And I said, now, you must know quite a bit about that subject. And she looked at me with puzzlement. She said, why? Why would I know? Well, I said, because you're single. All my single friends are always telling me how lonely they are, and they are all convinced that the solution to their problem is marriage. I said, aren't you lonely? Well, she looked absolutely nonplussed by the question. And she said, no. No, I don't think I am. She said, I drove up here today, it took me about an hour. She said, I, sometimes I listen to the radio or listen to tapes, but I wasn't listening to the radio or tapes. She said, I was just talking to the Lord and just so happy for this whole hour to be alone in my car. And I said, well, what would you say is the secret of this contentment in a woman who lives alone and I would think would be a lonely person. And in very great simplicity, she said, well, I guess it's just that I don't have an agenda of my own. She said, I wake up in the morning so excited to find out what God has on his list for me that day. And I just say, Lord, what's your agenda for today? And then I just start doing that. Will you receive the gifts that God wants to give you this afternoon? Will you, with both hands, say, yes, Lord, 
if that's what you want to give me, I'll take it. If you're making an outline, I haven't even given you point one, which I've just finished. <laughs> it's different gifts. Point two is acceptance. You must receive the gifts that God gives you. And they may not always be according to your choice. As we said this morning, we get a lot of gifts from other people, which we don't know what we're going to do with and we don't really like. And of course, they come from people who are fallible. They've tried to think of something that we would like or something that would be good and they missed. But God never misses in choosing a gift which is the best thing for us. It still might not be something we like, but if we really believe that it is God who gave it to us, then we have to believe that he knows exactly what he's doing. I love the hymn, which became very meaningful to me during my long waiting of years for Jim Elliot. And incidentally, somebody asked me at the book table, if I had a book that told Jim Elliot's side of the love story. I have a book which tells my side of our love story. It's called Passion and Purity. But in the book Shadow of the Almighty, which is Jim's biography, I have told his side. And we have to accept the gifts which God has given us. Jim was one kind, Ad was another, and Lars was another. When you go back to the Garden of Eden, you look at a perfect situation, an absolute paradise, in which God had put everything that that man and that woman could ever possibly really desire or need. Everything for their pleasure and their good. And Along came a the snake who planted in Eve's mind the idea that God had cheated her from something that she really had a right to have. And so Eve chose to believe Satan instead of God. Satan said to her, has God said that if you eat the tree, the fruit of this tree you will die? You won't die. In other words, he was saying, God has lied to you. You won't die. You not only won't die, but you will become like God. Now, God had given to Adam and Eve the gift of humanity. They were not meant to be gods. But Eve got the idea that she could upgrade her lifestyle. She could be something better than what God had made. And so she decided to believe what Satan told her and upgrade her lifestyle by eating the fruit of the tree. In other words, what was given to Eve was refused. The gift of humanity and the gift of her femininity because she was supposed to be a responder and she became the aggressor and the initiator and Adam refused the gift that was given to him of masculinity which was to be the initiator and the protector, and he abdicated his position, and he just trotted right along with Eve's suggestion. They both rejected the gift of their humanity, and they took what was not given. 
That was the original sin, wasn't it? And you and I are tempted every day to reject what God has given and to usurp what he has not given. Eve said no to the given, but there was a woman who, in spite of all risks and fears for her future, said yes, and that was Mary. Remember how the angel came and told Mary of this stunning piece of news that she was to become the mother of the Most High and that she would be overshadowed by the Holy Ghost and would find herself with child. And what was her response? But wait a minute, I'm engaged to Joseph. He's not going to like this. But how will I ever explain to my friends that I was not unfaithful to Joseph. But what am I going to do with this baby called the Son of the Most High? But what about my marriage plans? Well, what will people say? None of that was what Mary said. She said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Let it happen, as you say. In other words, Lord, if this is what you want to give me, I'll take it. Regardless of what the cost may be, and to a Jewish girl, the idea that she might be accused of fornication would have brought into her mind the fears of being stoned to death, because that was the punishment for a fornicator or an adulterer in the Jewish law. But none of that deterred her instant and wholehearted response to God, Yes, Lord. I am your servant, anything you say. So when God gives a gift, he gives with that gift privileges and responsibilities and limitations. And don't ever forget it. If you are going to do one thing that you want to do more than anything else in the world, that means you're not going to do a whole lot of other things that you would like to do. Isn't that true? What career woman who really wants a baby has not had to face some very difficult choices. Although the world is telling us every day you can have it all, the truth is you can't have it all. And even Golda Meir, who I think most of us would recognize as a very powerful woman who was premier of Israel, she said you cannot do both. She was the mother of four children and she said when you're at home you're thinking about all you didn't get done at the office. And when you're at the office, you're thinking about all that you didn't get done at home. The world says you can have it all. McDonald's hamburgers, I think it is, says have it your way. But that's a lie. You have to make choices. And Jesus made that very plain when he said, if you want to be my disciple, now that's your choice. There are other ma masters to follow, but if you want to be my disciple, then, he said, you must give up your right to yourself. That was the first pre condition. Give up your right to yourself. Is that easy? Is that a once-for-all thing, or does it go on for the rest of your life? It's something that faces us every day, isn't it? Giving that cookie to somebody else. 
Give up your right to yourself and take up your cross and follow me. One choice eliminates a whole lot of others. I'm told that there are about 2,000 liberal arts private colleges. If you choose to go to one of those liberal arts colleges, then that means that there are 1,999 that you cannot go to. It is a privilege, it is a responsibility, and it is a limitation. And if I am going to write a book, then I can't do a whole lot of other things that I would like to do. One of the things that I suppose takes us longest in life, and as we get old, we begin more and more to realize how important it is to accept limitations. We have to come to terms with the fact that you just settle it for that. You do this and you can't do all those other things. Now, let me just mention a few of the gifts which perhaps you need to think about accepting that maybe you've never even thought of saying yes, Lord, about. For example, your singleness. I don't know who's single here. Some of you have never been married. Some of you have been married and you're either divorced or you're widowed. But for one reason or another, you're single. And I don't meet very many men or women who really like being single. There are some, of course, who just think it's the greatest thing in the world, wouldn't be married for anything in the world, not if you paid them. But generally speaking, people think that it's nice to be married. But you are single. Now, is that a special gift which is going to last for the rest of your life? I don't know that, and neither do you. If you're single this afternoon at 25 minutes to 3, then you have the gift of singleness right now. Now, God might have the gift of marriage in mind for you, and you'll meet the man tonight. <laughs> but for right now, you're single. I remember how painful it was to be single after I was 21. I never thought a whole lot about being single until I was 21, but all of a sudden my friends began getting married right and left. And I didn't get married for the first time until I was 26. So for five years I became more and more conscious of what this phenomenon of singleness is all about. And I didn't like it. And that's what I wrote about in my book called Passion and Purity. There comes a point where you have to bring your deepest, most tornado-like desires under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I came to the place where I had to say, Lord, if you want me to be single for the rest of my life, my answer is yes. Because way back when I was 12 years old, I had said, Lord, I want you to work out your will in my life. It's thy list be done, not my list be done. Thy agenda, not my agenda. Thy will, not mine. And if I say thy will be done, it's going to mean my will be undone. Not once, but probably many, many times. So I would suggest to you that you think about the fact that to be single is a privilege and a gift. Singleness is a gift. It was Jim Elliott that pointed that out to me. I did not want to hear that. And he didn't make it up. He got it straight out of 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about how there are different gifts. Some have the gift of marriage and some have the gift of singleness. And it is for us to serve God faithfully and humbly within the terms of the gift that he has given to us. So if you are single, say, Lord, I never thought of it as a gift, but I accept it 
I will take it with both hands and I will say thank you. You can do all kinds of things that married people can't do. You have a measure of freedom that married people don't have, which Paul pointed out, and he said he wished everyone were single like him so they could be free to serve the Lord. But then he had to acknowledge that God did call others to be married. You have responsibilities as a single person. Did you ever think of your responsibility to be a spiritual mother to other people's children? A spiritual mother to the world? The world is crying for women who will be available to pour themselves out for the life of the world. I spoke on the subject of spiritual motherhood in Boston, and a woman came up to me and she said, I am an available woman. That's my job. When people ask me, what do you do, I say, I'm an available woman. And I thought, I said to her, thank God. The church is desperate for available women. Nobody's available. The ones who have raised their children now are being told, now it's time for you to do something for yourself. You owe it to yourself. You can do your own thing. You can go on a cruise. You can go back and get a degree. You can learn underwater macrame. And don't go out of here saying Elizabeth Elliot says it's wrong to do those things. All I'm saying is that God is calling us to be poured out wine and broken bread for the life of the world. And that means receiving this gift of singleness and offering it back to God as though perhaps he had a real reason for allowing you to be single because he wants you to be available in ways that the married women cannot do. Have you ever thanked God for your husband, if you have one? Well, I would certainly hope you have, not once but many times. But maybe some of you are married to what you would never call, but somebody else might call a real crumb bum. <laughs> Every now and then you have a sneaking twinge of jealousy when you see somebody else's wonderful husband, you think, how did she get him and how did I get this guy? <laughs> I'm convinced that God puts the most unlikely people together. You know, we are all, in a sense, odd couples. I'm sure people look at Lars and think, what in the world ever made him marry her? And I'm convinced, having had three husbands, all of whom were fine Christians and very wonderful men in different ways, but I'm convinced that everybody's incompatible. Every married couple, basically, is incompatible. Why? Well, because we're sinners. My grandson and his, and my granddaughter, I guess the same two that I told you the story about this morning, Walter and Elizabeth, were having an altercation when they were maybe four and two. And they had their father as a Presbyterian minister, so they had learned the Westminster Catechism. And when their father overheard this quarrel going on in the back bedroom, he went back and he said, why can't you two get along? <laughs> 
And Walter, the four-year-old, looked up and he said, Well, Dad, it's because we're sinners, Dad. (laughs) Now, why is your husband so infuriating in those little habits that he does that used to attract you before you married him and now you can hardly stand when you have to live with every day? Well, it's because he's human. He does a whole lot of very strange things because he's a man. <laughs> and you know, we, we women, we get together and we talk about our husbands and we shrug our shoulders and we say, isn't that just like a man? And I say, if your husband acts like a man, thank God. <laughs> what did you want him to act like? I heard a a woman came to send up a question in a question and answer period. She said, what would you tell a daughter who is about to divorce her husband because he's not meeting her needs? And I said, well, I would ask the poor girl this question, what in the world ever gave her the idea that there was one human being in the whole world that could meet her needs? There isn't. And I would say if I had Ad and Jim and Lars all at the same time, they could not meet my needs. Because there is a God-shaped vacuum in my heart, which is made for God and for only God, and nobody but God will ever fill it. And so I would say to that disillusioned and very misguided young woman, Have mercy on this man. You're asking of him what only God can do. He cannot meet all your needs. How about accepting the gift of this man that God gave you? He is a sinner, and he is stuck with a sinner. Don't forget that. (laughs) And if a sinful man and a sinful woman are going to live together 365 days a year, There are going to be some quarrels and some altercations and some disagreements and some hurts because we're sinners, Dad, right? My husband, Ad, used to say, if a woman is very generous, maybe she will acknowledge that her husband lives up to 80% of her expectations. Now, what's she going to do with the other 20%? She can pick away at it for the rest of their married life, and she will not make either one of either herself or him any happier. In fact, she's going to make them both miserable. The other choice she has is to accept the gift that God has given her in this very fallible, very limited man. Have you ever thought of thanking God for the gift of motherhood or the gift of the lack of motherhood? Maybe everything in you desires a child, and God has not given you a child. Do you still believe he loves you and that he will give you exactly what is appropriate to the job he wants you to do? If you have a child, if you have six children, have you thanked God individually for each one? I'm sure that you have. You must have thanked God surely when that baby was born. But as they grow and you begin to struggle with knowing, knowing your own limitations and your lack of wisdom and you don't know how to treat this child and these children are so different and 
what you do with number one doesn't work with number two, and what you did with number two and three doesn't work with number five. And you are just in a state of collapse. How about thanking God for the gift of that child? Jesus said, whoso receiveth this child receiveth me. Whatever you have done for one of the least of these my brethren, you have done for me. Whether you're changing a diaper, wiping a nose, helping with the homework, or writing letters to a wayward teenager, whatever you do for that person out of love, you do for Christ. This child is a loved sinner like your husband. When he's naughty, remember that he cannot be good. He needs help. He needs your help, and he needs the grace of God. And the last thing that I want to say about what we receive, number one was different gifts, number two, acceptance, number three is thanksgiving. You would say when somebody gives you the wrong thing for Christmas, at least he meant well. He did his best. Would you say as much about God? Even if you don't like it, would you at least concede that God meant well? Well, he meant far more than that, didn't he? Because it says it is for your sake that all things are ordered, so that as the abounding grace of God is shared by more and more, the greater may be the chorus of thanksgiving that ascends to the glory of God. You can thank God for the testimony of the lives of other Christians in whose lives you don't seem to have any difficulty seeing the hand of God. You can look at Corey Ten Boom or Betty Scott Stamm or Johnny Erickson and you think, isn't it wonderful what God has done in that life? And that life has redounded to the chorus, chorus of thanksgiving, and you and I are members of that chorus of thanksgiving, thanking God for his beauty in those lives. And yet somehow or other, you're not really convinced that the God of Corey Ten Boom is the same God who is at work in your life. And that you have just as much reason to thank God for the way he has operated in your life as you have for the way he operated in hers. Did everything work out nicely according to Corey's plans in her life? She went through some of the most horrifying things that I can imagine. I can look back and say, Jesus led me all the way. Led me step by step each day. Can you do the same? He gave himself for me. And if he gave himself, if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not, with himself, freely give us everything? That verse is from Romans 8.32. With himself he gives us everything. How much is a gift from God? Let's hear it. Everything. It's a gift from God. That's all I'm going to say, and I'll take a few questions in these ten minutes that we have. We may have time 
after the next talk for a few of them. I can see that we have more that we're going to get through here. Okay, I'm not going to read the question. I'm going to answer it, and then you'll know what the question was. It was when my second husband was dying that I was looking around for a student at the seminary where he had been teaching to come and live in the house to help me take care of him. A student by the name of Walt Shepard applied for that job and was to move in on the following Monday, and on Monday my husband died. So naturally Walt assumed that he was not going to be needed, but I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to have a seminary student or two living in the house because I was alone then, my daughter had left for college. And so I called Walt the next day and I told him even though I wasn't going to need his help, I would be delighted to have him live in my house. So Walt accepted the job. I called the seminary, told them I had another room available if they had another student looking for a room. So they said, yes, we'll send him down. He was just in here. So they sent a second man. And these two students lived in my house for two years. And to make a very long story short, Walt Shepard is now my son-in-law. <laughs> and lodger number two is my husband. The question, obviously, was, how did you meet Lars? <laughs> and when I told that story to a friend of mine, a little old lady in her late 70s who had lost her husband, she was from Texas, she thought about how I met him, and she said, well, I believe I'm going to rent my house out to three widowers. After your husband was killed, you went back to the same people with your little daughter and the love of God. Did you have any physical fears? How long did you remain with the Alka Indians? I knew perfectly well that there was a good chance that one or both of us might be killed. They had killed my husband and four other men. Why shouldn't they kill me? But I haven't got time to tell you how it all worked and how the Lord led me there that story is told in a book called The Savage, My Kinsman. But I think I can honestly say that I, I was not afraid simply because I felt very sure that God was opening the door for me to go there. And if there's one lesson that all of us need to learn, it is that obedience to God is our business, but the results of our obedience are His business. It is not our concern what if? It is only our concern, Lord, what do you want me to do? You do that, leave the rest with him. I always take the short questions first because it's so obvious that I'm not going to get through all of them anyway. Is our death set once or can we speed it up by making a wrong choice in disobedience and sin? That question goes back to the great mystery of the sovereignty of God and the love of God. In God's sovereignty, he has created a world in which our choices matter. We are not at the mercy of chance. We are not robots that he is engineering. We have real choices which have real consequences.
At the same time, because he loves us and because his power is infinite, God knows how to make even our choices ultimately redound to his glory. Now, don't imagine that you're going to satisfy yourself intellectually on that. You will not satisfy yourself, and nobody else will ever succeed in doing it. My second husband was a theologian and a, and a philosopher, and he used to say, we drive in a stake over here, the freedom of man to make choices. We drive another theological stake over here, God is sovereign. You cannot bring those two together. You just have to believe them. So the answer is yes. Uh, in a manner of speaking, you could say you could speed up your death. The other side of that coin is that whatever you do, God knows how to turn it into good. And I would refer you to the 50th chapter of Genesis, where Joseph speaks of the way he was treated by his brothers, which was very sinful. And yet he says, you meant it to me for evil, God meant it for good. I have to give you very brief answers, very inadequate answers, and you can go out and say, well, she didn't say this and she didn't say that, and of course I didn't because I don't have time. What was the most encouraging thing someone said or did or wrote in a letter for you when your husband Jim was killed? It was 2 Corinthians um, 4.19, four, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 4.17 and 18, the very chapter that we've been reading from. Our troubles are slight and short-lived, and their outcome and eternal glory, this is verse eight, 17, which outweighs them far. That was the verse that I clung to. This trouble is short-lived. And if you put it on the scales with the weight of glory, the weight of glory is going to outweigh it by far so that it's going to look like nothing. Not that it looked like nothing then, but the day will come when it's going to. Can Elizabeth share briefly about the experience and tragedy with her husband Jim? I wish I could tell you more of the story, but I'm afraid I haven't got time. These long ones, I haven't even got time to read them. In view of the current situation, oh no, that one I couldn't possibly. <laughs> if a person surrenders all to God, should she expect terrible trials to ensue because she can now handle them? It's <laughs> Who can handle them? I can't. I cannot handle my trials. People say to me, how do you handle this and that? I say, I don't. I turn it over to God. He can handle them. But let me just ask you a question. This person who says this, I can see this person saying, now, I'm afraid to turn this over to God because of what he might do to me. What is your alternative? If you decide you don't want the will of God, you will not surrender to the will of God, do you imagine that things are going to work better if it's my will be done? Do you imagine that you won't have to go through troubles? You have the choice of going through troubles with him or without him. Which do you want? Do you think God is still creating today? Yes, he makes the sun come up every day. And I think that that is an act of creation. It's an act of love. The stars shine because of the love of God. I breathe because of the love of God. You sit here alive because of the love of God. The, it, the scripture says that in his hand is the breath of every living thing. We could not take the next breath 
if God were not continuously creating. Whether he's creating other worlds or not, I don't know, but why shouldn't he be? Pages and pages, which I guess are questions. My seven-year-old has a very negative attitude, which I'm afraid will become a lifelong habit. How can she be influenced into a more hopeful and cheerful outlook? My daughter is asking exactly the same question about her eight-year-old, and she has a chart of complaining. When people complain, then they have to put a nickel in a jar, and when they're cheerful about something that she would have expected them to complain about, they get a nickel back. That's just one little suggestion. There are any number of ways in which you can call attention. It isn't that you can make the person cheerful, but if the child can be shown that his habitual reaction is a negative one, and this is exactly what I was like as a child, very much so, and I haven't overcome it by any means completely yet, but the, the child needs to be taught that we are commanded to rejoice in everything, and a command is possible to obey. It is always possible to do the will of God. Can you give me any ideas on how to help my five-year-old son grasp the concepts of sin and being a sinner? I don't think there's any question that a five-year-old or three-year-old knows the difference between right and wrong, generally speaking. Now, there would be certain things which have to do with specific rules in your house that he might not know. But if he's nasty to you, if he picks up his milk and flings it on the floor, he knows that's naughty. He knows that's sin. You simply have to start wherever he is and point out that this does not please Mama and it doesn't please God because the, the Bible says that the best thing that a child can do for the Lord is to obey his parents. I'd have 30 seconds left. Do you ever go through times of discouragement and what helps you through those times? Yes, occasionally I go through times of discouragement. I did this morning when I was preparing for this because I had had a long conversation with a very dear niece last night and I felt very discouraged about what I had said and very discouraged about what I'd left unsaid. And I just say, Lord, I put this in your hands. There's nothing I can do about it now. I leave it with you. If your discouragement is because of failures or things that you meant to accomplish that you didn't, then if there's any way to rectify it, I would say set about rectifying it. If there isn't, then you leave it with God. But the most comforting thing to me is the fact that God loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And underneath are the everlasting arms. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And we'll keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.